Years ago, I was visiting a church that did a lot of things I appreciated, including talking pretty openly about life's challenges. They talked about not making rent, losing loved ones, watching a kid make a choice that breaks your heart. They talked about the things that grieve our hearts, and that felt real for me. One worship service, they invited people who were experiencing depression to stand and be prayed for. And it was something else that they did that I just admired. They made it safe to be vulnerable, and they practiced showing or saying, that's me, so that others don't believe that they're the only one. They were giving people the space to practice lament, a model for how to mourn, whether it was experiencing depression or anything else that needed mourning. There's so much to grieve in the world all the time. Even if we're having the best day ever, we still know how many people in our world are struggling and suffering. And our love and compassion for the people God loves means we still carry an awareness of that and feel it in our gut. And I think this church was modeling after the writers of scripture who were themselves candid about the pain of our world. Consider, for example, Psalm 31, verses 9 and 10. They say, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. And my strength fails because of my affliction. My bones grow weak. The Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay notes that in Psalm 31, the whole of it, that is, the writer actually mentions a litany of struggles and needs. Battling, ensnaring, illness, reviling, isolation, persecution, threat of murder, enemies that are presumptuous against God. And rather than think that this author of the psalm was suffering all of these things, Golden Gay suggests that this poet and worship leader was designing the prayer for many people to pray in different contexts, that the writer used images that would be familiar to people who would use the prayer. Given the pain we often experience in our lives, this psalm and others like it, they're there to give us the space for lament and a model for mourning. Jesus, as he lived here among us, he did this too. In John, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and he joins up with Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha and the crowd who have gathered to weep and wail. And when Jesus saw her weeping, that is, the sister Martha, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus took the space to mourn. Jesus also spoke to his followers about the realities of living in our world, saying, you will have trouble. Following God means we mourn. We mourn for ourselves and what we struggle and suffer. We mourn for people we love. We mourn for people we don't know, but perhaps see on a screen, through a news feed. We mourn all the ways that God's dream of flourishing is unrealized. Of course we mourn. 
because this pain was never intended for us or anyone else. Now, back to that worship service where people did this beautiful, vulnerable thing. There was prayer and tears and hugs. And then the community sang together this old song that talks about how at the cross where our dear Savior died, our sin was washed away. It says, it was there by faith I received my sight. And then this line, and now I am happy all the day. Happy all the day. And it threw me off. In fact, I can remember at the time, it, it kind of made me mad. It felt so dissonant from what we had just prayed for. And surely these people who had just done this courageous thing, they weren't going to just be happy. Five minutes later, they had just confessed how they were experiencing depression. Or is that just the power of Jesus and I'm the faithless one? Maybe I'm being nitpicky about my words and the joy we hear about and this happiness in the song. They're just all the same. And if Jesus is so great, then of course, there it is. I struggled then, and I still do, with the dissonance. Because the song's not alone. We also read Paul's letter to the Romans. And he writes things like, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And Jesus finished the sentence, You will have trouble with, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, beyond these passages that talk about joy in hard things, there's also a ton in the Bible about flat-out celebration. There are festivals throughout the Old Testament, commanded celebration. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit of God in us. And the writers of the Psalms also say things like, You, God, make known to me the path of life. You will Fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's Psalm 16, 11. And so which is it? Do we struggle and suffer and mourn? Or do we celebrate and rejoice? Yes. And because it's both, we have practices that we can turn to to give each its space. We need a rhythm of life that lets us celebrate and mourn. Mourning helps us tell the truth about our experiences and receive the compassion of God in response. Jesus once told people that God is with those who mourn and they will be comforted. Mourning also clears the way for celebration. Celebration without mourning, it would feel fake, like we're trying to mask pain. Brene Brown writes about how we cannot selectively numb emotions, so we need practices that help us with hard feelings, with grief and devastation and rage and anxiety. We need to mourn. And so in a way, today we're asking, how do I build a rhythm of life, a joyful and sustainable way to live connected to Jesus, when my world gets too heavy? And part of the answer is, you tell God exactly that. It's too heavy. In fact, the heaviness is part of the very reason that Christ became incarnate, became a person just like us. A couple Christmases ago, I remember writing that Christmas isn't here to offer us a four-week escape from the pain of the world with a paper-thin layer of twinkle lights. 
is not here to anesthetize us with bows and eggnog lattes. Christmas isn't offering us the chance to escape the ache of life through piles of presents. Christmas is God saying, yeah, this pain is too much. Yeah, this is too sad. Yeah, the ache is too great. Hang on. I'll come carry it with you. This is the practice of mourning. To experience giving our burdens to God and God coming near to us to carry them too. When we were together live, we took a few minutes at this point to do a practice that is called the prayers of the people. It's a form of lament. It's a chance for people to say out loud something that's heavy. And the group actually responds to them. And that vocal response is in part a symbol of knowing you're not alone and that others will share that burden with you, at least with their honesty and their empathy. It's a chance to have people be witness to your grief as a concrete reminder that although God is invisible, God also witnesses your grief. If you need a moment to mourn, may I suggest that you pause right now and wherever you are, say out loud the things you need to lament. And then imagine Christ near you saying, you're right. That is so hard. Let me carry that with you. Now, back to joy again. There is a famous catechism, which is a class for young people to unpack and understand their faith. And it asks the student, what is the chief purpose in life? I love that question. And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy God forever. To enjoy God. When it comes to joy, we have practices that help us celebrate and rejoice in hard times even. Not because of the hard, but because of God. The times are bad, but God is good. They are hard, but God is near. They are heavy, but God is carrying it with us. And we can trust God to be God. And therefore... We celebrate. In another letter, Paul writes that we should rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But the scholar N.T. Wright translates it slightly differently, saying, celebrate joyfully in the Lord all the time. I'll say it again, celebrate. And here's why. See, he notes that the word rejoice, it often gets understood as a sense of joy that wells up and makes people happy from within. But in the context that Paul was writing, given the way that gods were celebrated publicly all around from all sorts of different traditions, the word would have meant public celebration. And the followers of Christ would have, in their own way, had public and celebratory exuberant worship to their God to whom they were most loyal. 
a sort of commandeering and reimagining of all of the exuberant celebrations to false gods and idols that surrounded them. Celebration would not have been internal. It would have been external, a way to practice what they believed was true when a situation all around them made them wonder. So celebration then, it's an external practice for us in order to invite God to create a new internal reality. It's an external practice in order to invite God to create a new internal reality. Celebration is an invitation for God to replace fear and anxiety, grief, lament, disappointment, mourning with joy. Joy that comes from Jesus and is because of Jesus. Now, this is all perhaps different than something you may have heard that says that as Christians, we shouldn't be sad. We have Jesus. Even if things are hard, we should rejoice about those things, not mourn them because, you know, it's going to create good in us. Richard Foster, in the book Celebration of Discipline, writes about this as he comments on the discipline of celebration. He says, a popular teaching today instructs us to praise God for the various difficulties that come into our lives, asserting that there is great transforming power in thus praising God. In its best form, such teaching is a way of encouraging us to look up the road a bit through the eye of faith and see what will be. And I would add here that that future hope is also something you see in many of the templates of the Psalms of Lament. In the midst of confessing all that is so hard to God, a psalmist will often write with a bit of confidence based on the character of God, believing that God will deliver them in the future. But they still don't expect praise for the struggle a lot of the time. Now, Foster goes on, in its worst form, this teaching denies the vileness of evil and baptizes the most horrible tragedies as the will of God. And so here's perhaps an alternative way to consider the transformative power of celebration. Richard Foster again. Joy gives us energy. Joy makes us strong. When the power that is in Jesus reaches into our work and play and redeems them, there will be joy where there once was mourning. Often, we try to pump up people with joy when, in reality, nothing has happened in their lives. God has not broken into the routine experiences of their daily existence. Celebration comes when the common ventures of life are redeemed. This is the transforming power of celebration, to invite Jesus into our everyday life and experience Jesus' redemption of the good things in it. Now, at times, I think we might wish to wait on celebration for things to be better or fixed or smoother. And then we reason that the improvement in the situation will elicit more trust in God that forms us. But it's the opposite. Finding ways to celebrate and then finding that the world did not stop spinning while we had fun. That's what reminds us that God is, in fact, God able to hold it all. Us too. Richard Foster one last time. If we think we will have joy only by praying and singing songs, we'll be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful.
that is full of joy. The transformative power of celebration is that it is a practice that invites us to fill our lives with simple good things and then relish them. And then discover that God is always God. Now, as a group, when we were together, here is what we did last. We pulled out our phones and we opened our photos. And then we found a recent photo where we were celebrating or joyful or where there was a simple good thing. And even if we didn't notice that that's what was happening at the time, we looked for it as we scrolled backward. And then we made that picture our lock screen. The practice is simply that for the next couple of days, as you see the picture, you pause and remember, I am here to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And a good God gave me this good thing. May the God of love fill you with abundant joy. Amen.